Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today we have on the podcast, Aji, who's our guest today? What's his name? Uh, we're going to have a fun conversation with Carrie about his new book. Um, but uh, l- let me say one more thing about my book. Adeline, what's my book called? Not Ever Again. Wait, have you read any of it? Have you heard any of the stories? Um, I haven't got one yet. You haven't got one? There's there's a few in the house. You can grab one. What would you, what do you want to do with it? you read it? Maybe put it in my shelf, but not really. Okay. Well, for those of you who have read it, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for all of you who've uh, tweeted about it, who've Facebooked, Instagrammed. I really appreciate the support on social media. It means a lot to me. Uh, if you have got it uh, and you enjoyed it, uh, hopefully you have, uh, and you would be so kind as to leave a review on Amazon or elsewhere and give a copy to your friend, I would be very grateful for that. Help us get the word out about the book. And let me get the word out to you about a great organization. You know what it's called? Lipscomb University Marriage and Family Therapy Department. Uh, yeah, good job, Audrey. Everyone wants to make a difference in this world. Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Program specializes in training people to make huge differences in the lives of individuals, couples, and families. Whether you are a new college graduate, someone ready to make a significant career shift, or a minister who wants to is- expand the scope of your ministry, the Lipscomb Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Degree offers a rigorous... 24-month program that can prepare you to become a difference maker. Adam, do you want to be a difference maker? Yes. Good. Well, you should go to Nashville, Tennessee and Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Program, which is accredited by the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education, which means a program it has met the highest and most rigorous accreditation standards in the nation. Audrey, has your preschool met the highest accreditation standards in the nation? Yes. So has Lipscomb's Marriage and Family Therapy Program. To find out more, go to lipscomb.edu backslash MFT or call 615-966-5237 and ask for Kathy Johnson. All right, friends. Now to our friend, the great North. Well, I don't know what part of North, but it's in Canada. He's in Canada. Here we go. Carry him up. Say bye. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from all the way up in Canada, Carrie Newoff. Thank you for being on the show, Carrie. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, so you are coming to us from uh, the beautiful northern hemisphere of Canada. Yeah, Thank north, you for... north of Toronto. Yeah, wow. That's uh, are, Where are you from, born and raised? Uh, Canadian. So I was born in Windsor and then lived in this area for a good chunk of my life, a decade in Toronto. So pretty mm-hmm. much within five hours of here. Outstanding. Now, the, the story is obviously you went to law school, going to be a lawyer, had this conversion, decided to be a pastor. Now, what that does for me is very, uh, it's disheartening because I've always thought of going into law as my backup career and in case this whole pastor thing doesn't work out. <laughs> and I thought it would just be easier. Uh, I guess that's not the case. Oh, law, I'll tell you, law kicked my butt. It really did. It's, uh, I have three degrees, law, history, and theology, my MDiv, and uh, law was the hardest by far. It, it's not for the faint-hearted, but you could totally do it. What, what was so hard about it compared to being a pastor? It completely retrained my brain, like way harder than seminary, like 
five x harder than seminary. Really? Um, you know, it was it was so. Ch- I went to a good law school, so I went to like one of the best in the country. I, I would say the best in the country. <laughs> Our rival would disagree, but that's only because they're wrong. And uh-huh. uh, so I, I got into law school in my dreams, and. I mean, the people who wrote the textbook were my profs. You know, the textbooks okay. that's, that's used coast to coast were my profs in many cases. And there were, there were, like, I was a good student in university, seminary, undergrad. I got straight A's. And, you know, you didn't have to work that hard for them because it was liberal arts. Like, you make this stuff up, right? It's not that hard. So, yeah. anyway, uh, I got into law school. And there were courses I studied for that I thought, I am ready. Like, literally 72 pages of study notes. And I got into the exam and I thought, I'm in the wrong exam. Like, I didn't study any of this. And that happened multiple times where it was, it was just, you know, there's a huge failout rate. It's like engineering. It's like, it's like all that stuff, right? There's a huge failout rate. And so it was just a grind. And the answer, it was binary. Like, you know, those of your listeners who have math and science degrees are laughing at the liberal arts people because they're like, you just make stuff up. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but this was like, you know, case law and radio descendies and like, you got it right, you got it wrong. So, and and then the way, like, I think the most valuable thing I got out of law is it retrained my brain on analysis, logical problem solving, thinking, Um, even surprisingly counter to the stereotype empathy because one of the jobs of a lawyer is you got to figure out what's happening on the other side of the courtroom and what does a judge need so you learn to read other people's minds so it was just tough I mean my I went from a straight A student to a B and C student in first semester and I'm like holy cow like this is hard I got my grades up by the end for sure second year but like it was just grind 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 and like 800 pages of reading a week like it was nuts. It was bananas. That's, yeah, that that that's a lot. W- one of my fears, though, is that you studied in Canada, and yeah. I figured law would be easier in Canada because just everyone's really nice and friendly, and so people yeah, don't really it. commit crimes. It's just like you just have Mounties exactly going around pouring out maple syrup, and everyone was happy. That's that- exactly how it goes. Yeah, okay. but even that right. was hard. Wow, um, fascinating. No, no, you're right. <laughs> Actually, that's funny. Um, yeah, you know, law's law. Uh, common law. Um, we have a lot in common with Massachusetts and the northeastern states that take common law more seriously. In Texas, you just have guns. You know, yeah, that that's settles a, we everything. Just, we just hand out guns when you. Where are you based out of? I'm based in Austin, Texas. Oh, you are Austin, Texas. Okay. Yeah. So there you Austin, go. Texas. Yeah. It's, Love that city. It is a pretty amazing city. I'm at a friend's lake house right now, and I'm looking out, and it's it's beautiful. And it's a it, it's a great town, and it's beautiful. Great food, great place to be. So if you ever, I, I, weren't you down in Austin? I think you tell a story about being in Austin in, yeah. in, the, in the book. Dean didn't see it coming. I do, I do. Yeah, my agent's in Austin, and uh, I'm not doing it this year. But uh, I'm on Orange tour, but I'm not doing the Austin stop this year. Okay. But yeah, we're we're in Austin a lot. I think I've got some speaking stuff there in 2019. So I love the city. It's great, outstanding. Well. Good Mexican food, good barbecue. We'll take care of you in Austin. So I'm glad to hear yeah. you're coming back down. You um, and Tim Ferriss hanging out, right? He you know, moved Sat- to Austin. He is? Yep. Yeah. Do you he keep up with Tim Ferriss? Uh, well, I listen to him. I don't know him. Yeah. I Like, I know he's a fascinating person. I feel like I should listen to him because obviously he has a very successful podcast and, and people like him and he's a very thoughtful person. Uh, anyway, I... I 
think he's, an, uh, he's not, a, he's not a Christian, but uh, yeah. by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think Christians should be in that field and listening, learning, praying. I mean, yeah, I think that's, like, that's the frontier of faith. Yeah. No, no issues about, about that. Are, are you an Enneagram person? You know, I should be. All my friends are. They're, they're, they're now. I'm so bad because I haven't done it. They're all like guessing. They, so the most common things are I'm a three or a seven, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, I would, I would make a strong assertion that you're a three. If I now, it's terrible what to say that, that to someone. Challenger, uh, the the achiever. Um, oh, achiever. Yeah, yeah. Me. I am a seven. Um, some think What's that a I'm seven? a three. Uh, seven is like the enthusiast. It's the uh, the person who wants all of life. Um, when I, they, a seven avoids pain, they run from hurt. They they don't want to feel like the darker emotions. The difference of a, a three is a three hyper successful. Their fear isn't pain, but it's failure, and it's being oh, yeah, unsuccessful. Yeah. Thank you for the diagnosis. That's great. I'm a th- yeah. I don't. I'm not worried about pain. Physical pain. Yeah, not a fan. But um, like hard work, failure. Uh, yeah, failure bothers me a little bit, but like. Pain to get there, discipline, no problem at all. Yeah, no, that's not, it's it's the failure. Like, that's the biggest fear for the threes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, plus you're a lawyer, pastor, like, those are two stereotypical three professions. Yeah, and I'm married a lawyer pharmacist, so go figure. Uh, okay, that is a whole nother, another podcast. Lawyer uh-huh. pharmacist? Yeah, she was a pharmacist. So I had a history degree, which is functionally useless. But for <laughs> me, it was pre-law. So yeah. it was like I knew I had to get a university degree before law. So I just picked history because I thought it was interesting. But she was a pharmacist, uh, got her pharmacy, and then she said, I think there's more. And it was either med school or law. So she went to law school, and we met in first year. So there you go. That's the best thing to come out of law school. You guys have this connection of like multiple degrees that I'm not saying you don't use them, but I mean. We waste them. We yeah, just, there it is. I'll let you say that. There's a whole bunch of degrees and ditches behind my family. So, yeah, that's and that's we have really... we have an accountant and an engineer now as children. So we have wow. more degrees and we know what to do with. Yeah, yeah. There's a a great line that my uh, my uncle's a vet and he talks about uh, uh, you know thermometers have degrees in them and you know where those sometimes get put. Um, <clears throat> but you anyway, know, it's so funny because you would think I would be an education snob mm-hmm. when it comes to hiring. Ask anybody I've hired over the years. One of the last things I look at is education on a Why resume. Why is that? It just doesn't matter to me. I've been around university long enough. I was there for a decade. Yep. You know, I saw all the professional PhDs, the whole deal. I'm looking to see who are you. Are you smart? Do you, are you scrappy? Are you yep. ready to go a few rounds? Um, do you have good intuition? And a degree helps, but I think it can hurt. I don't know. You, you I, stick I, around long enough, you're not yeah. impressed anymore. I'm not My, impressed anymore. My dad's a professor. Particularly yeah. by people who, who need degrees to feel good about themselves. If you have to be called doctor or pastor or whatever, it's like, eh, eh strike one. Yeah, if you have to be called that. What were you yeah. going to say about your dad? Well, I was going to say, uh, Pastor Kerry, I was going to say that my dad is <laughs> is a, my dad's a professor. He just retired from uh, teaching psychology for, for decades. But even with that, you know, I went to seminary, of course, um, but I don't think it is a requirement. And I think that there are, are certain innate issues that come from people like me who've gone to seminary and like you that they have to kind of unlearn once you get out of seminary. And there are other oh. issues if you didn't go to seminary, but I don't think one equates to successful ministry career just because you have a degree or you don't have a degree. Completely agree with your you, statement on that. You almost have to deprogram 
half of what you learned in seminary because it's built for a world that no longer exists. Like, you know, the now I went to a mainline seminary and I learned a lot. Like the preaching stuff was fantastic. I really appreciated my Bible courses, you know, for the first time in seminary, because I've been reading the Bible my whole life. All of a sudden it's like, oh, that's the story. Like I never got it. I sat in church every Sunday and like, oh, now I get the story. So I remember when I finished my Old Testament first year, I was I was very grateful for it. But a lot of it, it's like they program you for a church of a hundred people. They teach you to be a people pleaser. They basically rear you for model where you're 100% of everything that goes on ministry-wise, and you don't know. And it's like being a, you know, being a lawyer or a doctor. Do you know how little time you spend in law school or med school learning how to run a practice? Yep. That's why a lot of lawyers yep. are disaster business people. A lot of doctors you know, have financial problems because they make, unlike pastors, a gazillion dollars, but they don't know how to manage it, and they don't know how to run a firm, and they're bad bosses. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn all that stuff on the other side of seminary and then go, oh, wow, all these paradigms, which, which I, I get it. 85% of churches are small, but they basically – train you to be a small church pastor, well, what if you want to reach more people? That's one of the reasons I do what I do. Okay, completely agree. Learn about the Bible, you learn theology, you learn history, you can learn languages in seminary, unlike anywhere else. You said preaching. I typically feel like the preaching that is taught in seminaries, at least some of the preaching that I've heard uh, articulated in seminaries, is not the kind of preaching that typically uh, connects well with most people. You think preaching is taught well in seminary? Well, I only have my seminary as as a reference point. And in our faculty, it was a mainline seminary. So we had profs, uh, and it was part of a larger theology school, who didn't believe the Bible, who thought that Jesus was a mythical figure. And I'm like, what? Like, come on, guys. I was upset. Did you know that and before so- you got to seminary? No, I had no idea. I assumed everybody was a Christian. And it's like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And people had all these weird theories. So I was I was pretty agitated in seminary. And then, um, no, but our preaching prof really loved Jesus, believed the Bible, and believed in the authority of the Word of God. And I'm like, well, here's a guy I can understand. And so we kind of, the, the, the more conservative students, which I would have been at that seminary, um, we kind of gravitated to him, hung out with him after hours, and he was a very effective preacher. Like, he had a good audience, he he wrote a good book, and I mean, it was mainline, but I, I learned from like Fred Craddock, Tom Long, yeah. people like that. This dates me. But um, they, had, they had some really good things, and my approach to the text to this day is shaped by some of the stuff I learned. Mm-hmm. And if I ever did a doctorate, and I'm, I'm kind of done with higher education, but if I ever would do it, it would probably be in homiletics, like um, teaching people how to preach. I'm just fascinated by it. But instead, I did a preaching course with Mark Clark, so there's my there PhD. Yeah, that counts. Done. You're successful. Yeah, we shot it in two days, a lot faster than a PhD. Much, much faster, much faster. Mm. Um, okay, I want to transition to talk about the book. Are you good with that? Do you feel like we've yeah, fully... I'm great. We fully articulate everything about seminary. I think people know exactly what to get now. My, like my, I think seminary is what you do and I do. Like, yeah. Do I think most of our staff do not have seminary education and we don't care? Um, now, I think it's good for them to have a good theological compass and a good biblical framework. So we'll sometimes send people for courses. But I think I think the real world of like actual leadership in the church today is being plotted out on podcasts like yours, like the one that I do, and, mm-hmm. and many many others in books in courses in 
um, conferences. That's where we're learning from each other. Yeah. And uh, some seminaries are doing a good job of catching up, but the majority are still, you know, stuck in 1975 or whatever. Yeah, and I think you have to process that information is communicated and, and received and consumed in a different way now, and that people can go on iTunes and find Tom Wright talking about Paul, and you can listen to 10 hours of Tom Wright doing that very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are venues that you can consume that same content outside the walls of seminary, which I think requires seminaries to ask a new question of what are we offering? What are we giving people besides a piece of paper? Which most of us realize a piece of paper is, is not going to cause you to be a good pastor. Oh, absolutely. It's helpful, but uh, and this is the thing about, I talked about this with um, the Hillsong guys, because they do Bible college, so they don't do seminary. It's a different world. I think at Bible college, they teach you how to like do ministry, how to connect with people uh, in a way that seminaries, I don't think they have the the ability or the experience to articulate that to students, but I think seminary can teach theology in ways that... Uh, you know, Bible colleges maybe just don't have the resources to, to do that. So I, I wish there's a way that for us to work together. That would be far more helpful, in my opinion, than just kind of siloing, you know, we're seminary, you're Bible college, whatever. But Well, there's an opportunity. Yeah. Well, okay, that's your next two-day course. You go film that, fix it, and uh, <laughs> fix the church. That would be awesome. Okay, I want to talk about the book. Um, so, so the new book, uh, Didn't See It Coming, um, you, you talk about you developed this content. Uh, I, was this a sermon series at some point? Uh, no, after. It was fresh fresh writing. So yeah. I wrote it summer it, of 2017. It came out September 2018. And then, and then you, I preached on it after. Okay. But you wrote this, and you were thinking that some of this sort of, like, um, the audience would be 40s to 50-year-olds who've kind of found their life didn't go the direction they thought it would. And then as you were articulating this to some group, you realized that there are 20-year-olds who were going, wait a minute, no, no, I connected this already. Yeah. My, uh, my agent, Esther uh, Federikevich, who's in Austin, another mm-hmm. reason I go to Austin, um, I, I pitched the book idea and I had a sample chapter on cynicism. And I said, yeah, so it's basically a leader book and it's for older leaders, probably over 40 who have grown cynical and everything. And she's got a staff of millennials, as I do, but I didn't share the content with them. And they're all crying when they heard it, like in good, like conviction crying. And uh, she's like, oh, no, 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 this is much bigger. And then I started, I spoke on it once or twice and like a whole line of millennials coming up going, this is me too. And then and then I heard... You know, that it's it's not just um, leaders, because I, I spent a lot of time in the leadership space, but people are like, no, this is a people issue. So it became, by the time, that was probably 2016, uh, by the time the book came out two years later, it had become a general release book that was just for people who are interested in self-improvement, who mm-hmm. are struggling with life and overwhelmed or, or at least seen things like cynicism and pride and burnout and emptiness seep into their lives when they didn't want to be that way. Yeah. Uh, so cynicism isn't just for someone 50 years down the road realizing, oh, this isn't working, but cynicism happening is happening to millennials, to 20-year-olds. Um, you know, I wrote a book about my cynicism when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. So I, I fully agree with that assessment that, that it's happening earlier. Why do you think it's not just for those 40s, 50s? I think uh, we live in a pretty cynical age, and I don't think I'm a fan of social media and technology, but I don't think social media and technology have helped. Mm-hmm. Um, we are bombarded with information every day, and I think at the root, to my diagnosis of cynicism, it's a knowledge problem. 
the reason that so many well i'm i'm an optimist by wiring by nature i'm an optimist again but in my 30s became very cynical and i i write about that in the book but you know if you think back to your optimistic self when you were younger why were you so happy answer cuz you were stupid you, you didn't know anything right like you didn't you didn't yeah. you didn't you were going to plant a church and it was going to grow immediately you know you're going to hire staff no one was ever going to quit you were going to get married it's going to be the best marriage ever and no one was ever going to fight and then you get into real life with real people wait did you did you, you just know read things. something that i wrote down cuz i feel like you just described my entire life right there that literally was my entire life I hear that over and over and over again, but that's our life, isn't it, Luke? Like, that's my yeah. life, that's your life, like, that's that's it. And so, we end up in a place where, oh, well, people did leave my church, and now I'm on round three of staffing, and boy, this marriage, I'm going to hang on to it, but it's not easy. And so, we grow cynical, and knowledge, kind of the knowledge of how the world really is, impacts our heart. And what happens is as cynicism, cinnamon, cynicism grows, uh, as cynicism grows, hope dies. And you yeah. stop hoping. You stop trusting. You stop believing. And I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable for everybody, but like I haven't run into too many people who have said, I'm not cynical at all. This has had no impact on me. Uh, I think, think of yourself 10 years ago, think of yourself today. Are you more hopeful, less hopeful? Mm -hmm. That probably answers the cynicism question. You say in the book that uh, cynicism is a choice. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. How, how is cynicism a choice? Yeah, I don't think anyone chooses to become a cynic. So it's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to wake up today. It's not like I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to be cynical, right? Nobody, uh. nobody starts out that way. But once you realize this is happening... You don't have to stay a cynic. So becoming a cynic isn't really a choice, but staying a cynic mm -hmm. is. And I think that's really when you get to my stage. I'm in my 50s, and you look at people in their 40s and beyond, and at that point, it becomes a choice. At that point, you, you are saying, okay, now that I know all this, now that I understand how life really works, mm -hmm. I have a decision to make. And, you know, none of us have to think very far to think about grumpy old men or grumpy old women who are just angry about everything and they roll their eyes and they know everything. And that's what cynicism does is it turns you into a know-it-all. It's like, don't tell me anything. I, I, I already know how this ends. I know where this thing goes. You know, it's just, it's just challenging. So, um, you know, Luke, there's no point even asking any questions because I got this figured out. Thank yep. you. Yeah, and that's that, a cynic. And, and that's why you say almost like the, the anti-venom for cynicism is curiosity. Because the, ah. the cynic is like, I, I know everything. I've got all the information. I know how the story's going to go. I'm not, I, I'm not interested in what's going to happen next. But the anti-venom is curiosity. So how does curiosity undo that? Yeah, I think I, I noticed something a few years ago that the cynical are never curious and the curious are never cynical. Think about the cynical people you know. They're not curious because they know. Mm -hmm. There's like, oh, no, 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 I'll tell you. I told you. Ha, ha, ha. Right? That, that's the cynic. Curious people are like, that's right. really? Tell me that's more. Right. That is. Yeah. Tell me more. I'd, I'd love, to, you know, help, help me understand. Like, okay, well, what happened when you were doing that? What were you thinking? Like, that's a curious person. They're not cynical. So I think fundamentally what, what I had to do to decide not to stay a cynic is I had to re-engage my heart. Mm -hmm. Because what happens to cynics is they withdraw. 
the reward to those of us who are cynical, the reward for staying cynical is, um, well, I can, I can just look at you, look down my nose at you and think you're, uh, you know, oh, too, too bad, sucks to be you. Um, but I'm okay. I'm up here in my little tower where I know everything and everything's under control. If I'm going to not be a cynic, I have to put my heart into it again. I have to believe again. I have to yeah. hope again. I have to trust again. And I have to say, Luke, let's have this conversation. Yeah. Let's see, let's see how I can help. And that makes me vulnerable. And so, you know, that's a really big part of it. But how do you keep that uh, a daily discipline? And I've just found that when I find myself growing less curious, I also find myself growing more cynical. When I find myself growing more curious, I find myself growing less cynical. So um, just ask a lot of questions, be open, uh, don't make assumptions, don't jump to conclusions. And I think it's a good recipe to becoming uncynical. Yeah, yeah. I I think the... It's almost like the trite rom-com character. I don't know if you watch rom-coms, but I'm going to... No, I don't. Let, uh, let me go to... Oh, yeah, the trite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, go like, ahead. the rom-com characters, you have one person who's been hurt in the past, and so they're not open to love anymore, and so they're a workaholic or they're whatever, and eventually they find someone, and that, then all of a sudden they realize, oh, the reason I'm I'm not putting my heart out there with the next person is because I've been burnt in the past, and so, the, you know, the way that they get to the happy, happily ever, ever after is because they finally go, okay, I'm going to open myself back up again right it, that's exactly it that's exactly it and that was my path to becoming and for me it wasn't love i've been married for 28 years to the same awesome woman but for me it was friendship that i had a few really close friendships disintegrate and people joined my church faster than they left our church but they still left our church and that hurt mm-hmm. and i just decided i had to hope again trust again believe again and open my heart and you know, that really, we, we got news uh, when we're recording this over the weekend that Eugene Peterson is failing in his health, which is just, it's heartbreaking on about a hundred levels. Like, yeah. what, a, what a gift and who, who on earth is going to replace him? But, you know, there's this message translation of a verse, I think it's in Romans, that says, I want you to be fresh and celebrating. Like, I've always mm-hmm. held that in as a picture of me at 70 or 80, I want to be fresh and celebrating, not like I want to be more open and more hopeful at mm-hmm. that age than I am today. Yeah. But I think gravity is going to pull you in another direction. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. In, in the book, you tell a story of a parishioner who, um, long story short, I mean, they act very entitled and you never could do enough for them. And, you know, you did so much and you, you went so far out of your way to, to be a good pastor to them, a good friend to them, and it still wasn't enough. And for any of us who've been a pastor for any amount of time, we've probably had a, a situation like that to some degree. Uh, I remember one person, and I can't go into details because they don't give away their identity for some of my other friends who would hear the story, but um, they said, well, you're, you're a pastor. What else do you have to do during the day? <laughs> come do this what else do you have to do I mean you, you, you can't be that busy and I'm like thank you I'm, I, I have a job but appreciate it but it, you know you don't want to get answers because I used to get that it's like what do you do golf all day and then you say actually yeah I've gotten really you know I'm a low handicap these days mm-hmm. and pretty much I golf all day I only work for about an hour on the weekend if you have two services you can say but now it's doubled to two then people immediately go oh no I'm just joking I'm mm-hmm. just joking but I just started rolling with the joke and yeah 
it's amazing how it changes the conversation. See, my response. But what do we do all week? That's what I see. My response is a little bit like more sardonic than yours, and maybe that's because you're a nice Canadian Uh and I'm just an American. But my typical response is, yeah, it's a real easy job, except I have to deal with jackasses like you. And so. Again, maybe that's, that's the difference of a Canadian and American right there. I, I feel like you're a better person. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Try that one out. Let me know how that goes. Put that in your next leadership uh, book. I'll let you know. Um, I'll let you know. Uh, in the book, you talk about how formation is this idea of how God changes us, that, that we aren't the ones who change ourselves, but, but God is changing us. And when when we talk about even just cynicism, the idea of, okay, the re- the anti-venom to cynicism is being curious. Ask questions. Uh, d- don't act like you know everything. Be open. But it seems like, like that's a practice. I'm doing something. But spiritual formation, as you describe, and others have s- said very similar things too, is n- it's not our work. Sanctification is what, what God is doing in us. How do we kind of balance those two things of, I have practices I should do to get rid of my cynicism, but it's really God who's undoing it. Mm. Yeah, at the end of the book, I talk about Calvin and Hobbes, Um, not the cartoon character, although I really enjoyed that play on words, but John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. Mm -hmm. So Thomas Hobbes, if I wasn't a Christian, I would be, you know, have a Hobbesian or existential view of the world that, and Hobbes said famously, life is harsh, brutish, and short. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's not bad, particularly, I think he was 17th century, 18th, I think 17th. Hobbes, Hobbes was right. I mean, that comes from Leviathan, one of his classic works. And, you know, apart from faith, life is harsh, brutish, and short. But then there's John Calvin. Calvin comes along, and he starts the Institute of Christian Religion with this pretty outstanding observation. And he said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Hmm. And, and that's really interesting, because most people, including the neo-Calvinists, would expect to only quote the second part of that quote, which is without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. But he saw it as, a, as, as an entirety, that unless you know yourself, you can't really know God, and until you can't really know, you can't know yourself until you know God. So it was both. So you can't know God until you know yourself. You can't know yourself until you know God. And I think the challenge for a lot of us is, is our God knowledge may be high, but our self-knowledge is low. Hmm. So Daniel Goleman would come along in the 90s and call it emotional intelligence. And so you just have to become aware of these things. To quote Augustine, Augustine said, pray as though everything depended on God, work as though everything depended on you. So I definitely am in that camp, that camp of, of Calvin that says, hey, self-knowledge actually matters because think about it, you don't, you don't like hanging out with people who are not self-aware. I mean, you know, whether it's bad manners at the dinner table to their impact on people, you have a, and, and for me, it has been a lot of growth in self-awareness. Now, I would make the argument that this is what the ancients called sanctification. Mm-hmm. What is that? Being more and more made into the image of Jesus. And so think about it. If you keep your heart open, it, are, you, are you more and more like Christ? I talk about pride and the anti-venom or the antidote to pride is humility. And humiliation is involuntary humility. So let's say your heart is more open. You have the habits of a humble person 
you live with a very small gap between your public walk and your private talk. That's that's the chapter on compromise. Um, you live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. So you're you're respecting the way God created you. Um, you're working for God's kingdom, not your kingdom. That's emptiness. Well, what is that? I think that is to quote Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. I think that is that is me becoming every year progressively more like Jesus and less like sinful carry. Mm-hmm. And it's always a battle between the two natures, but yeah, I think it's both and. And there, there are a lot of transformations that I look back over these first few decades of my adult life that's like, I, I would carry himself and his flesh would not have been able to do mm-hmm. that. Uh, but God is, I don't want to say he's gotten rid of jealousy, but oh my gosh, have you lived inside my skin as a 35-year-old and now as a 53-year-old? I'm in a very different place mm-hmm. on that. Um, if, you, if you want to look at security, it has grown and hopefully so has humility with that. Um, most days, I think I'm working for God's kingdom. Some days my kingdom still gets in there and I, I got to you know squash that. But like, there's that idea that we become more and more like the image of Christ. How, how would you prescribe someone begins a process of self-awareness? Uh, oh, my buddy Jeff Henderson, who I quote in the book, uh, has this great, terrifying question. Just ask someone who you spend a lot of time with, could be your spouse, could be your kids if they're a little older, could be coworker, boss, whatever. Ask them this question. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Hmm. And then just listen. It's terrifying. I've asked my wife that question. Jeff first asked that five or six years Mm -hmm. ago. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good self-awareness question. It's a terrible self-awareness question. But as I've asked Mm -hmm. it, I've become more and more aware. I had a staff member years ago, and her nickname for me, and we're good friends to this day, was Bam Bam. She said, remember that character off the Flintstones? You're probably too young to watch the Flintstones, but it was this kid. Did you watch it? I, I didn't, I didn't watch bam? I didn't watch cartoons much when I was a kid or now. So, sorry, Wow. Man. That's a whole other yeah, podcast. I've, I've, like, yeah, you can deal with that whenever you want. Well, I've watched no movies in the last 20 hey, years. Hey, I've got so rom-coms. You, you go. have cartoons. We're good. We'll stay in our lanes. Yeah, yeah we're all <laughs> good. We're all good, Luke. <laughs> Uh, but he was a little kid, a toddler who didn't know his own strength and went around like just breaking things. And that, that's me. Like that's a not self-aware leader. I would say something in a meeting and I would think, well, I'm just giving my opinion. But apparently I just clobbered everybody in the room. And, you know, it takes me back to law. I remember we were both part of this not-for-profit corporate organization in downtown Toronto, myself and a, and a friend of mine named Bruce. And Bruce was complaining about a really bad board meeting he'd been to the night before for this not-for-profit. And he was like, oh, my gosh, it's a complete waste of time. I just wanted to walk up and get out. And I said, well, why didn't you say something? And he just looked at me. And I, I remember this all these years later. He just said, Carrie, we're lawyers. I could go down one side them and up the other and terrify them and change things. But how would we be ahead? Hmm. I'm like, Yeah. You know what? I wish I'd remembered that my words, particularly as a senior leader, carry a lot of weight. And the bigger your organization gets, the bigger your influence gets, the more weight your words carry. So I have to be very careful where the negative leaks out. And I have to be really careful who I process my deepest thoughts with. Because I can just, you know, imagine Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick hearing one of you. Do you preach? Uh, I try to every Sunday. 
I try to. So imagine Furtick picking up. Uh, he just listens to your podcast and he drops you a note. Hey, Luke, uh, nice job. You know, solid B effort. Good try. Better luck next time. Hmm. You remember that for the rest of your life. And it will depress you every time you go to speak. Now, Stephen Furtick would never do that, but his words carry a lot yeah. of weight. And so my job is to really be the encourager to 90% of the people. And guess what? That goes at home too. And it goes as mm-hmm. a parent. And it goes as a friend. And so I'm learning all that stuff. And I've got to find healthy ways for the negative to come mm-hmm. out and limit the unhealthy way. So what's it like to be on the other side of me? Ah, some days it's a good thing. Some days not so good. Yeah. And you need to know the difference as a leader. You need to know when you're oh. off. You need to know. And that's a problem for a lot of us is we have no yeah. idea. I, I think that's a great and terrifying question that I really don't want to go home and ask my wife that question. So I'm going to probably edit that out so I don't have to think about it myself. Um, <laughs> because never we never happened. brought up in this conversation the gap between your public and private life. And so since we don't talk about it on the podcast, then I'm not going to have to apply that part of the book either. No, you don't have to apply that either. Yeah. Moral compromise, that's one of the sections in the book that I talk about. And it, it's fascinating to me because um, I think I think invisibly today, particularly in the culture we're in, we have these little check boxes and we say, well, I have not cheated on my wife, which by the grace of God is my story. And the IRS and I are fine. So I haven't morally compromised. Like I'm good, right? I'm good. And yes, that's really good that you have checked those two boxes and that that is good, but compromise starts so much more subtly than that. And one of the the things that I zone in on, and this is very tough if you're in a public role, like you are, like I am, and I I don't even mean podcasting, I just mean you're the guy with a microphone on a Sunday morning, okay? So you're in a public role, um, there's a real temptation, almost a gravitational pull that will turn your public walk Uh, It'll create a gap, I should say, between your public talk and your Mm -hmm. private walk. So let's say things aren't going well at home. Let's say your wife says, well, actually, I'm glad you asked a question. Do you have an hour? I'm going to tell you what it's like to be on the Mm -hmm. other side of you. Blah, 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 blah. I've been unhappy in our marriage for years. I think you're uh, da, 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 da. And we have to go to immediate counseling and you're devastated. And then you see someone the next day. And they're like, how's it going, Luke? And you're like, it's going great. You you tell a story in the book about like you you were late for something. I think it was in Austin because you were, to use your words, you were a jerk of a husband. And if... On one, only one day. That's weird. Can you imagine in 28 years of marriage? That's the only story that got included because it's the only time that happened. I knew that. But do you feel like that's ever too much of... if, if every Sunday you get up to preach and go, you know, I was a jerk of a husband yesterday, or, you know, I was rude to someone at this, or, or you know, I overlooked something that I should have done, it becomes too much about you, or there's too much self-disclosure, and because what you're talking about becomes too much of, of you, instead of... Yeah. It's an interesting question, because, I mean, going back to where we started this conversation at seminary... Almost nobody told personal stories in the 90s when I was training, late 90s, early 2000s. No one told personal stories because it was too much about you. Um, What we used to do is say, you know, in 1873, there was a Mm -hmm. flood and this happened and then this person set up shop and hope abounds or whatever. You know, and nobody uses those stories anymore. You listen to most preachers who are effective. It's all personal stories. So I think what you do, I try to make sure I'm I'm rarely the hero in my stories. Um, 
that they're somewhat self-deprecating. Now, should you be taking the stuff that you're processing with your counselor into the pulpit every Sunday? No, because there's a certain point at which you're, you can overshare. And to me, the line is, is what you're sharing helpful yeah. to other people? If it's not helpful, so when I was burning out, which was the year 2006 for me when I had my summer of burnout, for me to speak, write, preach, talk on burnout publicly would have been a disaster because I was burned out. I had no idea. I would have been vomiting in public. And that's that's like, I, I didn't know how to help anybody with it. But two or three, four or five years on the other side of burnout when I was healthier again or healthy and I found a new normal and I could analyze what happened and help you with it, well, that's a different story. So that's a test yep. for the the public filter. But just to, to close the loop, because uh, that that day in Austin, we were off to a buddy's church and I was being a jerk husband. It involved, uh, you know, Google Maps. So I was not impressed with my wife's Google Maps skills and maybe a little, every husband gets really uncomfortable it, when I tell this story. I, I, I'm, I'm just sure. imagine other people think that is a an issue with in their family too. I, I personally can't relate to that because I'm not going to be that forthright. No. And I want to keep, but your friend, yeah, he yeah that friend, that, that friend that we were talking too. about. Okay, uh huh. So, 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 you know, I had that issue, and I got upset, and I'm like, well, that isn't the right road. And then I grabbed the phone out of her hand, and I'm like, here, I'll do it myself. And she just started sobbing, and she wasn't sobbing just because of that moment. She was sobbing because it mm-hmm. wasn't the first time, and she suspected it no. wouldn't be the last time. And when I saw the depth of the pain, I realized, uh-oh, we're not fixing this in 60 seconds. So I pulled over to the side, because that's every husband's dream, right? Every marriage problem yeah. solved in 60 seconds. So we pulled over to the side of the road, and and I had to apologize, and like it wasn't going away soon. So then I have to send this text to my friend Buck, and I'm like, what do I say? Do you just say, sorry, man, can't make it? Right. And just mask it and keep that between Tony and I, my wife, Tony and I. Or do I say, sorry, Tony's not feeling well, which would be a total slimy guy move. Right. (laughs) Blame it on her. But really, you're you're the jerk. And so there's a part of me that wanted to just say, sorry, Tony's not feeling well right now. But that's a jerk move. And so you know what I did? I just said, I've failed husbanding 101 today. And I won't be at church. No. I'll see you tomorrow. Mm. That was honest. I didn't like throw up all over him. And then I did see him the next day and I explained what happened. And he and his yeah. wife could relate. And Tony and I had made some progress by then. So it wasn't as painful as it was in the moment. But you know what? Here's, here's the thing. And this is why I think aligning your private walk with some modicum of truth in your public talk. I think by having to confess to a friend, in James 5, it says, confess your sins to each other. So that wasn't really confessing my sins, but having to own it and go, you know what? I was a jerk is different than going, sorry, Tony's not feeling well. I think that almost enables future sin, whereas coming clean, and even if you're having a tough time at home, or let's say you and God are not feeling close, you don't want to throw up all over your church, but if someone says, hey, Luke, how you doing? You know, to say, you know what? I got a few struggles going on, but otherwise I'm okay. How are you? That has some integrity to it. And so I'm trying to make sure that there is, that nobody who knows me well is shocked Hmm. by my public talk. Okay, I, I know you got to run, but th- your church, pretty good size, uh, numerically. 
Yeah, yeah. We uh, we were talking about that today. I think there's probably three or four thousand okay. people who call our church home. Fifteen hundred, okay, so two thousand on the weekend. Thousand people are at, at our services yesterday. If I walk through the hallway, if you hey, how's it going? Luke? Well, you know, yesterday wasn't the best time. Is that literally how the conversation goes in the hallway at church? Oh, I'm glad you asked because if it's Joe Newperson, you're you're not going to share that. But you know, if it's a staff member, if it's, I I think your your degree of openness mm-hmm. and vulnerability is proportionate to That's the good. depth of the relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think if it's a Joe New person and you're like, wow, just had a big blow in the parking lot with my family, yeah. that's like, eh, fail. But, you know, and if it's just somebody who casually attends or is not in your inner circle, but when one of your elders or your senior staff pull you aside and go, how's it going? Yeah, I think you that need makes to tell sense. The because here's here's what here's the other side. The other side is everything's great all the time, mm-hmm. which isn't true. To an Enneagram seven, that's the truth that they want to believe. But it's yeah, but it's not true. Okay, I, I know you got to run. <laughs> I, I love the stuff in the book about how uh, character keeps you in the room. Competency gets you in the room. Character keeps you in the room. Love that. Good stuff in the book. Didn't see it coming. Thank you for writing it, Carrie. It's been an honor to talk with you. You're welcome. That's one of my favorite quotes, you know, and and I'll leave listeners with this because I really appreciate the time you've taken and uh, I wish I wish we had more time today. But the challenge with that is I'm really driven. You're really driven. You're a podcaster. You work really hard, blah, blah, blah. We all do. Um, I always used to think that the big limiter in your future was your competency, but it's really your character because we can all name top leaders that we maybe once or still admired who aren't in the room anymore. Wasn't that they weren't smart. It's that they blew it in their character and they had to resign or they were fired or whatever. And so just work twice as hard on your character as you do Mm. on your competency. That's a good word. word. Carrie, all the best. Thanks for coming down virtually all the way from Canada to Texas. (laughs) <laughs> well, like I said, I love Cheers. Austin. Luke, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.